Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Television. Visit grassrootstv.org for on-demand community archive footage, as well as educational, inspiring, and entertaining local programming. A contribution to Grassroots TV allows us to bring your voice to the valley and to preserve media that will be enjoyed by future generations. Visit us at grassrootstv.org and follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Twitter. We encourage you to support all the local businesses and citizens that generously underwrite grassroots programming and play an integral role in nurturing open communication among the residents of the Roaring Fork Valley since 1972. Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Community Network. Hello, I'm Ira Bedzo, and this is The Good Life, a show that talks about all aspects of human flourishing, from physical and mental health to social and spiritual well-being. The topic of today's show is elder care and living life more fully. And I will be speaking with Dr. Jules Rosen, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Mind Springs Health. Dr. Rosen. Hello. Hello. Uh, first off, thank you for coming today. Uh, before we begin talking about elder care or geriatric medicine in particular, uh, just tell me a little bit about Mind Springs Health. Uh, what is its philosophy and who are its patients? Yeah, so Mind Springs Health is the essentially the community mental health for 10 counties in western Colorado, uh, including Aspen and, and Glenwood and Breckenridge. Our main headquarters are in Grand Junction, where we have, we're actually completing construction on a brand new state of the art hospital. So we are uh, the community mental health, but as it is, for many aspects of mental health care, you don't have a lot of resources in, on the Western Slope in terms of psychiatry, nurse practitioners who are specializing in mental health. So we provide the spectrum of care, of therapy, medication management, uh, groups. We try to work with our communities, our local therapists as much as possible, and we've really connected with the primary care population providers so that they can have direct access when they see somebody in their office who needs our, our help. And, and as a chief medical officer, what is, if you'll excuse me, what, is, what does a, a chief medical officer do uh, in terms of making sure that its mission uh, uh, continues in the way that it should be? Yeah, so, so essentially, if, if you look at community mental health, there traditionally has been two silos, mm -hmm. the therapists, and the medical people, the prescribers. So as chief medical officer, I'm essentially in charge of all the prescribers, uh, quality improvement processes, uh, making sure that productivity is adequate. What we're doing at MindSprings that I think is pretty unique is we're removing the silos because we have developed a philosophy that the best care, the most Effective care and cost-effective care is when you combine the therapy, the medication management, using other experts like peers. And we've developed a peer training program, and we have an amazing cohort of people who are in recovery of mental illness, substance abuse, who are now professionals working with us. And they are, it's such a powerful workforce. So really putting together treatment teams to help people as they struggle through a behavioral health or a mental health problem. Right, so, so that's that's really interesting. And, and one question I, I would want to ask is: it it used to be that, that psychiatrists used to engage both in, in treating medicinally and also engaging in therapy. Yeah. Uh, and then 
whether it be because of insurance or specialization and so forth. Therapy really went to psychologists or, or other types of yeah. psychotherapists, and psychiatrists really became psychopharmacologists. Right. Uh, when you say that you're now integrating that type of treatment into teams, does that mean you're still maintaining that new division of labor uh, between psychopharmacologists and therapists? Or are, is that integration now being, even in the medical side, the recognition that therapy uh, is uh, the other side of that same coin, if you will? Yeah, so, you know, my personal belief is that the greatest advances in mental health in the last 15 years have been in the psychotherapies. The medications have really been me-toos, and you have some new techniques which are, which are encouraging, like transcranial magnetic stimulation and, you know, other things. But the greatest advancements have been in the evidence-based therapies. And what we know is that if you are suffering from depression, you can take a medication you can go into an evidence-based therapy. You can do both. You can try one or the other. And the outcomes are going to be similar mm -hmm. if you're getting good treatment and very successful. So, so I know this doesn't necessarily talk about elder care, though it gets to we'll it. We'll get there. But when you talk about evidence-based uh, yeah. medicine with regards to therapies, it's a lot easier to, to look at evidence-based when you're looking at the neuroscience of psychopharmacology. It's much more difficult to set up tests to look at uh, how therapy and, and uh, behavioral therapy uh, is evidence-based. There's just a lot more factors to deal with. So how do you engage in, in creating an experiment when looking at the psychotherapy aspect of, of treatment? Well, there's actually excellent scientific evidence supporting the efficacy of the therapies. Um, and there are many different types. Um, I think when people think of therapy, they still think of Woody Allen lying on the couch for years and years and years and wondering if he's ever getting better. And that, that's one kind of therapy. But most of the evidence-based therapies are structured in terms of six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, X amount of hours, homework and assignments for the, for, for the consumer. And the outcome data is terrific. In, in fact, there have been studies that show you can get better um, and stay better longer if you have depression if you get therapy than with just medications alone. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, there's a tremendous, and, and what it gets into is almost in some cases patient preference. There are some mental health conditions that absolutely require medication as far as we know at this point in time, schizophrenia. In most cases, in one of those where medications are needed, but not all, bipolar illness where people go into the manic phases. Um, and I say at this point in time, because when we talk about evidence base, what we think is truth today, we, 20 years from now, our people who are gonna follow us in our field are gonna say, what were these people thinking or doing? Mm -hmm. So we are very much always keeping our eyes open for better treatments, and, and for many, is there are some patients that say, I, I don't want therapy, I only want medications. And others that say, I don't want medications, I only want therapy. So at MindSprings, we're really looking at ways to build a treatment plan that is customized to you as the consumer. Mm -hmm. And, and you're a, a geriatric psychiatrist by training. I am, and now by lifestyle, and, and, and by lifestyle. So, it, which goes to my question, what, what does geriatrics mean? How is yeah. it different than elder care and ger uh, gerontology? What, what, what are all these terms 
Why isn't it not just psychiatry? Yeah, well, first of all, um, as people age, their physical, their emotional, their social conditions change. And what geriatric psychiatry does is it really is at the crossroads of medicine, neurology, social work, what is happening with retirement and bereavement, and what's going on in terms of your emotional response to all of these things. So it is very much a medical, in the medical corner of behavioral health. So we integrate all those things. Um, geriatric, and it doesn't matter to me, uh, you know, we're, we're called geriatric psychiatrists. Uh, uh, gerontology is more the science of aging rather than the medicine of taking care of people with, who are getting older. But uh, if, some, if one of my patients wants to be called, they're seeing somebody for elder care, then mm -hmm. that's what I am. And, and what, what age do people start going to see a geriatric uh, specialist as opposed to a general practitioner? Yeah, say. so it, it's, it's very simple. Uh, you have to be one year older than me. <laughs> so seriously, I never put an age on it. Uh, and, and this is very relevant to what happens in our mountain communities. Um, I have seen people in their 30s with early onset Alzheimer's disease or severe genetic problems, and they, at an earlier age, have the aging issues, okay? Mm -hmm. Whereas you have people living in the mountains who might skin up, you know, the mountain every morning, and they think they're, they have the body of a 30-year-old, and in some aspects they might, but their cells, all their cells don't necessarily know that. So they are also aging in some, but somewhat differently. Mm -hmm. So in terms of um, when somebody needs a geriatric psychiatrist versus a general psychiatrist, it really depends on the person mm -hmm. and what's going on. So, so I may be setting up a false dichotomy, but yeah. Is aging really about the lifestyle one has or the physiology one carries with them? Uh, or better yet, what, what is the relationship between those in terms of the aging process? Well, what we know about aging is that, uh, number one, at this point in time, science has no means of stopping it, okay? <laughs> so part of how we age depends on our genetics. Uh, some, people, some people have gray hair at an early age. Some people have no hair at an early age. Other people can keep their hair or the color of their hair well into late life. If you think about that analogy, that, those variations are probably true of many other cells within our body. So how is your liver aging, your kidney? What we worry about mostly is how is our brain aging and how is our heart aging? Because these are the things that we're very, most of us are very aware of as each decade passes. No, it's funny that you, you say that we worry about how our brain is aging and how is our heart aging, which sounds very medical, I'm not disagreeing. Right. Uh, if I was a, a, a patient or, or just a person thinking on the street, I would think about aging not necessarily in terms of my brain aging, but more of my mind getting older. So okay. how, do you, how do you look at the relationship between brain and mind when yeah. it comes to psychiatry? Um, number one, to me, there is every, every function that our mind does is done by the brain. Mm -hmm. Every thought we have, every emotion we have, I hate to put it like this, is a biochemical reaction. Mm -hmm. Does that mean in order to enhance our thinking or improve our feelings, we have to use biochemistry? No. 
because we can use um, meditation. If, if any, anyone who meditates, does yoga, does exercise, we know that when we do those things, something is changing in our mind. We feel differently. That's a change in the brain. So to me, there's no dichotomy. And I, and I know a lot of people think, well, and, and people use the term, they have a chemical imbalance. I pers Again, personally, I hate that term because that suggests that to correct a chemical imbalance, you have to adjust those chemicals externally. Those chemical imbalances can be adjusted by lifestyle changes, by habit changes, by therapy, by exercise, by yoga, uh, by meditation, mm -hmm. by a good night's sleep. Okay, mm -hmm. these are, mm -hmm. so to me there's no dichotomy. It's interesting, it's almost as if there's a, uh, a feedback loop in terms of a person's uh, uh, chemical uh, imbalance or, or neurology uh, affects their thinking and their habits, um, which then either reinforces uh, the chemical imbalance and so forth. So you can almost work either, let's fix the chemistry, which will then change thoughts and habits, or let's fix the, or change the thoughts and habits, which then may fix the chemistry, which goes back to that exactly. integration between psychopharmacology and cognitive behavioral therapy, how they can work in tandem or complementary, uh, as opposed to in parallel or just two different options, if you will. You know, you know when I first started my career, uh, I was very interested in post-traumatic stress in the World War II veterans. And at that point, was, this is in the 80s, and so they were getting up in there, they were in the geriatric age group and had the, the elder care issues. But what struck me was that if an environmental event such as being a POW or being in the Battle of the Bulge or being a Holocaust survivor can change how you think. Why? So these negative events can change your view of the world. Why can't positive events do mm -hmm. the same thing? Mm -hmm. And why do we rely so much on using the medications to change? And, and that really is how I've based a lot of my research and my career. Mm -hmm. um, that, that improving resiliency, changing how we think, uh, is much more than just medications. And, and, uh, I know, so it's interesting. It, 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 the way you're, you're, you're speaking about it, it, it sounds very similar to the positive psychology movement. Absolutely. In terms of how positive psychology saw that the same types of work that is done from uh, the, the perspective of healing could also be done from the perspective of bettering oneself. Exactly. Uh, does geriatric medicine or geriatric psychiatry take into consideration uh, the preventative medicine as well? Um, and uh, how would it do that in terms of people who are advancing in age thinking, oh, I, I should go see a psychiatrist just for a, a tune-up, if you will? Yeah. I, at this point, I wouldn't go to a psychiatrist for a tune-up, but there are wonderful therapists who are very familiar with positive psychology and, and resiliency. In fact, our CEO, Sharon Raggio, has developed a curriculum that she brings to co uh, communities that really address, we're not just interested in mental problems, we're interested in mental health and taking somebody that is mentally healthy and expanding their resilience, expanding their positive thinking. Mm -hmm. So, no, it, it all goes together. Most psychiatrists, at least trained in my generation, 
focus more on the pharmacology. But this is where the treatment teams come in. And so there is there should be no no silos between us. And what are some of the the challenges that uh, geriatric psychiatrists or, or, or therapists who deal uh, or who work with geriatrics uh, face that would be different from younger adults, if you will? Excellent question. So what, as we age, every organ is changing. You, you can lose 60%. As you age, your kidney function changes. And you can lose 60% of your kidney function before you have evidence that your kidneys are not working at 100%. Same is true of the brain. So as we age, from the age of 40 on, we're losing memory, okay? And, and that's not Alzheimer's. That's just normal aging. So as we age, the changes that we say, this is normal aging. I'm, I'm not as, I don't run as fast as I used to. I don't remember as good as I used. That, that's normal aging. At some point, that may cross a line where, oh my God, my memory is giving me trouble. It's interfering with my ability to enjoy life. Could that be Alzheimer's disease? Yes. Could it be sleeping in a high altitude without adequate oxygen? Yes. Could it be that you're on medications that are interacting with each other, some of which you buy over the counter, and so your doctor doesn't even know you're taking these medications, could that be now interfering with your cognitive functioning? Again, if you're 30 years old, 40 years old, you have that much more reserve. If you're 70 years old, you may be mentally astute and functioning optimally for your age, but now you have these interferences that take you below that line and you're experiencing symptoms. Mm -hmm. Could it be depression? Depression changes cognition. So people can look like they have a dementia, they really have depression. Mm -hmm. And late life depression doesn't always look like younger life depression. Mm -hmm. the, in fact, the most common presenting symptom of late life depression is I feel sick. Not I feel sad or I feel hope, I feel sick. Mm -hmm. And their primary care docs may turn the world upside down trying to do tests, why are they feeling so sick, until they think, well, could this be depression? The most common presentation of late life depression is somatic complaints, complaints that I feel mm -hmm. sick. So is, a lot of the examples that you gave seem to deal with um, you know, biological uh, issues or senescence. Are there, are there social factors or environmental issues that, that uh, elders face or the geriatric population face that uh, cause mental illness to be more prevalent or certain types of, uh, of mental illness to be more prevalent? Um, and how does that affect uh, geriatric psychiatry? First of all, as people approach their elder years, um, they tend to retire. Some people are ready to retire and others haven't given it a thought. And this can become a trigger for anxiety and depression. Um, the medical problems that are more common as people get older, whether it is type 2 diabetes because you are eating improperly and your weight is too high, um, hypertension where your blood flow, you're having many strokes and you don't even know about All of these medical things change our brain, which alters our thinking and can expose us to depression, anxiety, confusion, uh, dementia. 
And how would you invite? How would you advise uh, patients who are going through, or or just regular people who are going through different changes in life, uh, on what they could do or what they should do in order to uh, ameliorate some of the, the negative um, yeah. options? Well, for, first of all, uh, I'm a big believer that you don't start thinking about this the day you retire or the day you turn 65 or you sign up for Medicare. That thinking about how you're aging and what you want to do as you age, and let, let's assume that we're going to live to the age of 75 or 80, um, those preparations need to start earlier on. And, you know, it's well known that things like social engagement with friends and community is important. Family engagement is important. Laughing is important. Exercise is important. Eating right. So to, if you are really looking to aging successfully, it has to start in, as your lifestyle earlier on. You know, the Blue Zone, which, and they've been coming around our mountain communities where they identified worldwide communities where people live to the age of 100 routinely or more. Uh, they've identified many of those characteristics. Um, diet, exercise, uh, engagement with people you love, engagement with spiritual connections, those are all really important factors. You know, it's funny, there's, there's been a lot of research that uh, is changing the way that we look at work, uh -huh. uh, where work used to be seen as the value of work was in productivity, uh, where now we're beginning to see that the value of work, while productivity is important, is in the social engagement that people have while working. Mm -hmm. uh, pe you know, people talk about their work family or their work community. Uh, but then when they retire or they, they, they take off more work given, you know, that they're aging and they want to try new, new things and, and not be involved in the workforce as much, uh, they haven't developed the same relationships outside of their employment than right. they have inside their employment. Uh, and that, that alienation and that atomization is, is something that has uh, a, a shock to both the mental and the physical system. Uh, it almost seems as if a form of preventative medicine, although I, I hate to put it in a medical term, would be community engagement. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you shouldn't hesitate because, again, you can call it preventative therapy, okay? Uh, so that it's not putting a chemical or a medication into your system. It is doing something positive that changes how you view, view your relationship to the world. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Do the values of people change as they get older? Or uh, do the priorities that they have begin to change? And how can you uh, help coach someone or, or, or show someone how to reprioritize the values if they are, if they are changing? Yeah, no, I, I believe and, and I think most people believe that we change every decade how we think. And if you think about how, you know, when you were 25 years old, what you wanted to do on a Saturday night is probably much different than what you want to do at the age of 45 or whatever you are. And as you become 65, as people age, they do, they're, they're in this, all, many, many theories about this, but we do look back at our lives and what have we accomplished, whether it's financially, socially, our families. And people tend to look, look from up top more. What have I accomplished in my life? And they grow closer to family. They become more, um, they maybe cl grow closer to spiritual roots if they have gotten away from that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there are tremendous changes. Um, it is not unusual that I, if I'm seeing somebody with depression, 
who has been struggling with their retirement and perhaps bereavement because that's the other thing that happens as people get older, they're more likely to be immediately impacted by a, a family member with bereavement. Um, referring them for spiritual support uh, is a routine of mine. Mm -hmm. And you don't need a psychiatrist. You need to speak mm -hmm. to somebody that can help you get back into those roots. Mm -hmm. So not from the provider perspective, but from the patient perspective, uh, how does uh, economics versus uh, changing in values and priorities affect their decision-making when it comes to the, the options or the choices that they have in, in, in their health care? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I understand. the So most people... Like, like I'll give you an example. Yeah. Uh, for example, if people are no longer working, um, uh, yet they're not old enough for okay. Medicare. Right? They may have an issue in terms of the finances, right. uh, whereas uh, it may be that... Uh, it's not necessarily finances that affect, but what they used to think in terms of, oh, I would never want to get old and, and, and live as an old person. Now that they're aging, they're like, oh, living as an old person isn't so bad. That would be a change in values that might change their medical decision making. Right. Right. And, right. and right now, you're, if, if I'm hearing your question correctly, right now, if people say, you know what, I'm, I don't need to make any more money. I want to retire at the age of 58 and enjoy my family, enjoy my life they may be inhibited from doing that because of the cost of health care. Mm -hmm. So uh, the fact that our health care is so tightly linked uh, to our, our job, our mm -hmm. vocation, uh, that, that can very much change how people think about retirement. Mm -hmm. Does that uh, affect how medical providers are looking at the different alternatives that patients have as well? Um, or do medical providers not want to say, look, we want what's best for our patients. We don't want to take economics into consideration. But economics will, t just by virtue of the, the ability for patients to comply or not, need to be taken into consideration. So how does economics then affect the different alternatives that providers would tell their patients about? You know, I, excellent question. Mm -hmm. I am not sure how often a provider, whether it's a physician, nurse practitioner, or a therapist, actually think about the finances of what they do, except how it affects them. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and we see this all the time where people will come out of a hospital on a set of medications that their insurance won't pay for. Mm -hmm. So you've stabilized them in the hospital, not understanding that when they go back to their Medicaid or Medicare or whatever, th their formulary may be restricted. Mm -hmm. um, even in terms of, of treatments, um, uh, I am not sure, and this has been my interest um, mm -hmm. as a professor at the medical school in Pittsburgh and the business school, I've always been interested in the relationship between the clinical effectiveness of evidence-based care, as we know it today, mm -hmm. and the financial impact. Because until you can show a healthcare system that providing this newer evidence-based method is also fi to the financial benefit, that it's not just doing more needless tests or more clinical, you know, clinical tests or anything like that, um, I think you're gonna have trouble catching on. I saw this in the nursing homes in Pittsburgh where and we had the, 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 most, the most prolific division of geriatric psychiatry in the country uh, filling 
academic journals every month with uh, with articles and mm -hmm. and then I could go take care of a patient in the nursing home and not a single clinician in the nursing home had any idea what was going on in the literature and it wasn't until I got funding and did research showing wait a minute if you change your care of this frail elderly person to this method look at the money you save by mm -hmm. getting them better quicker and preventing complications mm -hmm. and and I think that's not how most clinical practitioners think. How do I save the health care? How do I provide the most cost-effective care? Mm -hmm. Now, it's funny. Uh, I think there's a big disconnect uh, between the way medical providers think about care and even just the social or public discourse on end-of-life care today. Yes, uh, yes, yes. You know, we see today with regards to aging and longevity that there's these two opposite poles. Uh, and they're seen both from the perspective of the individual and the perspective of the community. Like, for example, in terms of uh, uh, right to die movements, uh, there's two different arguments. One is the argument of the individual should choose when to end their own life. Uh, then there's also the social argument of we spend way too much on health care uh, and we need to now figure out how best to provide end of life care so that the some of the issues or, or difficulties of, of uh, end-of-life care on the individual is, is mitigated. Um, but this values versus financing plays uh, a very strong tension, if you will. Same thing with regards to longevity uh, or functional longevity. There's been a lot of research going on in terms of how do we increase functional longevity, uh, while on the other side people are saying, why are you spending so much money on research on functional longevity? You should be spending that money on uh, the end-of-life care and quality of life of people who are living now uh, in terms of uh, giving them the best that they need. Uh, at MindSpring's Health, you may be more focused more on the, on the, the, the clinical side and not necessarily the, the research side, um, but how do you see geriatric medicine moving given this, this social or public conversation that we're having today? So, you know, again, a tremendous question. And, and I live this, but my mother who passed away, um, she went through years of in and out of the hospital in congestive heart failure. I knew from the data that her prognosis to, that she will survive with the next six to 12 months is minimal. She say, stated many times, I don't want to die in a nursing home. I want to die in my home. So if she were my patient and the family was sitting there, I would, you know, here's the data and this is your mom's wish. and let's talk about what is important to your mom at this point. When it was my mom, it was a very different story and I couldn't separate the mind and the heart. So this is something that, again, like I was talking about with retirement, this can't wait until we're in a situation because the mind and the heart are gonna get so confused. These are dinner table conversations that you may wanna, that primary care docs should be included in. If you are of a religious bent, your clergy members, what do when when the doctor's telling me that my chances of surviving in a healthy way beyond the next 12 months are minimal, 10%, you can pick the statistic, 20%, 5%. I don't want to prolong my life artificially. I don't want to go in and out of the hospital. But when my mom was doing that, even though I was very well aware of what her core values were her entire life, I could not, uh, in, in fact, very funny story, I walked into her hospital room one day and she said, I have it. 
I've had it, pull the plug, pull, pull the plug. And I said, Mom, there's no plug to pull. And she insisted, and I unplugged her radio. And we both had a good laugh. And that's what was so confusing, that she wanted to die. She didn't want to go on living like this, but she could still laugh. And I think this is kind of the discourse we need to have, that if somebody is in a severe depression and they say, I am ready to die, I want to die, then that is not when you pull the plug or remove treatment. But when somebody has consistently said, this is the kind of life I like, and when the statistics say my chances of having a productive survival beyond the next six months are 10%, I don't want to take that chance anymore. Very personal and very difficult. So do you think, and based on your story, and, and this is difficult because I, I feel many medical providers try and toe this line where they compartmentalize their professional perspective and the way they ask questions and their personal perspective and the way they ask questions. And one of the reasons why they do that is to make sure that they don't impose their own values and their own biases onto the patient. But by distancing them, themselves, they also sometimes don't allow the conversation to go a certain way that will actually express the patient's values just by virtue of people tend to answer questions in the manner in which they're asked. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can't, if you're compartmentalizing yourself and you can't see from the perspective of a family member or from the perspective of, uh, uh, of a friend, you may not be getting to the questions or to the answers of patients in, in, in seeing what their goals actually might be. So how, how do you think that providers should be balancing or, or towing that line between professional versus personal? Uh, first of all, there's a time factor. And again, I talked about my mom. I got a call at 3 o'clock in the morning from about my dad in the hospital. And he just had a, an event where he had pneumonia. And at three o'clock in the morning, the doctor says, should we just put him on comfort care? And my response was, this is not a three o'clock in the morning discussion, okay? So it is the time factor. From a, from a physician or provider or an expert point of view, we, we struggle with this where you have some doctors that say, you know, this is what you need to do. This is what I'm telling you to do. If you don't do it, go find another doctor. Then there are other ones that say, well, I don't want to tell you what to do, and this is a person. Uh, there has to be a middle road. And, and with that, and, and I, the story I told you about my mom, I tell to patients and their families because they need to know we all struggle with this, and even someone who is self-identified as an expert still struggled with it and maybe did not make the right decisions at the right time. So I find, I, I find it, it takes that personal connection. Uh, most psychiatrists still have that Freudian wall. I do not believe in that, um, that, that if you're going to be helpful to people at that point in their life, they have to know they're talking to a real person who struggled with their own issues around this. And now at my age, I experience some of those issues myself. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I think the end-of-life issues is something that cannot start in the geriatric years. The discussion has to be a lifelong discussion. And you asked me earlier, do things change as people age? Your end-of-life decision-making and thinking can change every decade, mm -hmm. depending on where you are. But that discussion has to start earlier. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Rosen, I, I want to thank you so much for speaking well, with me today. You. This has been... 
uh, and enlightening and, and a very nuanced conversation. Uh, we touched on a lot of topics. Uh, it seems as if geriatric care runs the gamut from much earlier than I expected all the way towards end of life care with all of the factors that it involves. So I want to thank you so much for, for coming in and, and speaking. It was my pleasure. And if I could say one thing in conclusion is that our mountain communities have excellent primary care. What is missing in many of these communities is the geriatric slant. So even though these guys can still ski, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the double black diamonds, there are aging issues that could be under the surface and could be improved if addressed earlier. No, thank you. And to our audience, uh, we hope that with this show, you've come a little closer to achieving the good life. Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Television. Visit grassrootstv.org for on-demand community archive footage, as well as educational, inspiring, and entertaining local programming. A contribution to Grassroots TV allows us to bring your voice to the valley and to preserve media that will be enjoyed by future generations. Visit us at grassrootstv.org and follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Twitter. We encourage you to support all the local businesses and citizens that generously underwrite grassroots programming and play an integral role in nurturing open communication among the residents of the Roaring Fork Valley since 1972. Thank you for tuning in to Grassroots Community Network.